Okay. And uh, therefore, we, we hope that this will also be a time of redemption. Uh, of course, uh, this year we, it gets a little complicated because we have what you might call a uh, non-human biological uh, danger, the coronavirus and everything else. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm not a, a tremendous expert on this, but it seems to me, you know, coronavirus is an old name that includes the common cold, includes many, many things. So essentially, it's, it's the flu, basically. And Baruch Hashem, flu can be serious. People do die from the flu. But it's very rare that people die from the flu. So this is not, people write about the coronavirus as if it's the bubonic plague, the Black Death. Uh, please rest assured, it is not that at all. It is simply the flu, uh, a certain type of flu. And uh, I understand that Israel is on the verge of uh, developing a vaccine for this particular flu that will be available in around less than a month. So uh, it's an amazing thing because they were just, before there was any epidemic, they were just picking something to develop a vaccine for. They happened to pick this coronavirus. It was like, if you don't believe in Hashem, it was literally a coincidence. And they're almost finished with it, exactly when the epidemic, uh, the epidemic started. So uh, this is a classic example of Hashem giving us the refuah, the cure, before the maka, before the ailments became um, evident. So... Uh, have bitachon, have trust, and be'as with Hashem, uh, everything should, should, should be okay. Alrighty, so uh, we are in the middle of something. We began it at the end of uh, last class, and that is stem cell research, and what are the halachic concepts of stem cell research. Again, let me remind you what stem cells are, or at least embryonic stem cells, and that is when you fertilize an embryo, that means uh, egg, sperm fertilizes an egg, so you have what is called the blastocyst. That's simply the name for the initial fertile, fertilized thing. And then it begins to split. Two cells, four cells, eight cells, 16 cells. It splits, very tiny. And initially when it splits, these cells have not yet become differentiated. You don't yet have skin cells, liver cells, kidney cells, brain cells, heart cells. You just have cells. These cells can potentially become anything. And then, uh, around a, a month or so, we, you begin to then have what is called differentiation, meaning some of the cells turn into skin cells, spinal tissue, etc. cetera. Uh, so stem cells is when you harvest them, you take them out of the embryo, when they're still in an undifferentiated state. In fact, the term that's used, it almost sounds like a religious term, they're called pluripotent. We don't call it omnipotent, because only Hashem is om omnipotent. But pluripotent just means they can become many things. Uh, a stem cell can be grown. You can duplicate it. You can culture it. And then you can coax it to become any one of 200 plus types of cells in the body. So you can make heart tissue from stem cells, you can make brain tissue, you can make spinal cord tissue, you can make liver tissue, you can make skin tissue. In other words, stem cells can become anything. The reason why that's so is because every cell of your body has the whole DNA. The only thing is, once it differentiates, the other DNA shuts off. So when your cell becomes a skin cell, the DNA of liver, heart, brain stops. Still, it's a very um, mystical mechanism of why that's so. So stem cells is simply where you get it when it can still become anything, like unlimited potential. That's why it's called pluripotence. 
So it was discovered around 25 years ago already, so it's not mamish new, that stem cells can be harvested from early embryos, usually that, that were spare embryos, meaning there were more embryos that were fertilized uh, than the people want implanted. And uh, therefore, which was found, you could harvest the embryonic stem cells. And with the stem cells, you could make all sorts of things. And stem cells have been very, very useful. They are like a repair system of the body. So, for example, uh, stem cells can be injected into a damaged heart. And the stem cells become heart valve tissue that repair the heart. You see, you can do that. Uh, it's been thought, uh, I think it's been done already, that you could inject it into spinal tissue and it could repair uh, for Parkinson's and other diseases of, of the spinal cord and, and the like. Eventually, we're not there yet, eventually it should be possible in theory that you could use stem cells to make an entire organ, an entire heart, an entire liver. That would be phenomenal because that would mean you wouldn't have to wait till somebody got into a horrible accident that crushed their brain and we talked extensively, I don't want to repeat it, that that has a lot of halachic problems. Are you allowed to take hearts from brain-dead people? Right? We discussed that uh, in length. But if you could create hearts from stem cells, I mean, that would solve the, the shortage of organs uh, immediately, and that would also uh, avoid halachic problems, per se. Right? So that would be a wonderful, wonderful thing. Now, as I say, to date, uh, science has not yet created a whole organ from stem cells, but they have created, as I say, heart tissue, liver tissue. They have created tissues, but they haven't created the whole organ system yet. That's a bit more complicated. But in principle, there's no reason why they could not. Yeah. So say they were to extract stem cells from the embryo, in terms of quantity, like how many embryos are needed to extract like, an interesting amount of stem cells? Uh, all you need is one. Uh, because from one stem cell, you can, you can culture 10,000 of them, you can culture 10 million of them, because they, you know, they can reproduce, like cells do. But then why do we need to use one? Why couldn't we have like one embryo? Well, well, well the, re the reason is that because this is still experimental research, there's a lot of failures. I mean, that, that's the problem. So, so they want to have as many embryos as they can, even though once, uh, once the learning curve uh, is uh, settled down, uh, you could do with very little, actually. Okay? So this is stem cell research, a wonderful, wonderful uh, uh, treatment that has tremendous, tremendous potential, some of which has already been realized and some of which is not going to be realized until, uh, until the future. And it's an example of what is called niflaos habore, the wonders of God in terms of creating this repair system uh, for the body itself. Now, again, you'll remember, I, I know I'm reviewing a little bit, that stem cells can be found in different locations. Uh, the main controversy that we're going to discuss is called embryonic stem cells, where you harvest them from early in vitro fertilizations, before there's been differentiation, before a month or so. Uh, there are also stem cells in umbilical cord, that's cord to stem cells. There are also stem cells in bone marrow, uh, every person's bone marrow. In the bone marrow, there are some stem cells that are capable of becoming anything, so to speak. Now, uh, those stem cells, either cord stem cells or bone marrow stem cells, really have almost no halachic controversy at all. Certainly, we can use them 
Why not? Uh, they're very good. Uh, the halachic issue and the, the ethical issue generally and even the Christian issue, the Havdil, has been uh, about the, what is called the harvesting, the harvesting of embryonic stem cells. That's the term that's used, harvesting them. Because the problem basically is that uh, in order to get embryonic stem cells, you have to basically destroy the embryo. The embryo is destroyed in the process of harvesting embryonic stem cells. So the halachic issue would be, is the destruction of an embryo in order to get stem cells treated like an abortion? Now, again, we'll talk today a lot about abortion generally in order to understand the issue, but that's the, that's the question. Because you are destroying, I don't want to say the word killing yet because that would be assuming the, the question, but you are destroying an embryo in order to harvest embryonic stem cells. So the issue is, hey, that's abortion. Are you allowed to do abortion uh, for that, for whatever medical reason you have? Now, indeed, I mentioned to you that the Catholic Church is officially against the harvesting of embryonic stem cells because they have said that it is abortion and under the position of the Catholic Church, abortion is treated as murder because life begins upon conception. And uh, in the case of embryonic stem cells, there is already a conception. The embryo is already, or the egg has already been fertilized and has become an embryo, or as it's often called, a pre-embryo, because it's not yet in the woman's body, but that's just the label. Yeah. What does it mean by Lahavdil? Uh, okay. uh, Lahavdil means uh, when you compare, let's say, something holy to something not holy, so you say, lahavdil, we want to make a difference. So if I say, the Torah says this, and the Catholic Church says that, so a common way of talking is, the Torah says this, and the Catholic Church, lahavdil, to separate it from the holy, says that. It's not an insulting term. It's just separating between that which is holy and that which we don't regard as holy. So, in fact, uh, I might say, for example, uh, even something like, the Rebbe said so-and-so, and I, and I, lahavdil, you know, would say so. You know, so it's not, it's not a term of derision. It's just a term of differentiating that which is holy from that which we do not regard as holy. Right. So, so when you compare Torah to Christianity, you might use a phrase lahavdil. It's a, it's a way of talking. Okay. Uh, that's like havdala, right? What is havdala? To separate the holy from the uh, non-holy. Yeah. Yeah, if if her heart if her heart is still beating. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, she so she's brain she's she's brain, she's brain dead. Yeah. But her heart is beating and, and she's yeah. Three weeks pregnant. Yeah. Well, you're asking me generally, are you allowed uh, are you supposed to keep the pregnancy going? Like could she still grow an entire baby while uh, yes, as a well, well I'm not I'm not sure how, well let me put it this way. We absolutely have uh, cases on record of pregnant women uh, who were brain dead and they were put on respirators and their heart continued to beat and they were able to bring a baby to term. Now, I, I, I can't say it could have been as early as three weeks. Did you say three weeks? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, the cases I'm aware of was the last trimester, meaning she was six months pregnant and they were able to keep the baby going for three months. Uh, whether she could do so for eight months, 
I think is not likely, and the reason is because the state of clinical brain death does not last that long. So uh, she, she's not going to, her heart is not going to beat that long. I just mean if it's three weeks and it's before different differentiation, and so then that, those could be, like, that could be an embryo that... Well, um, okay, well, but I think, I think you're going to see that uh, once the baby is actually in her body, uh, the laws of abortion are much stricter, meaning, okay. meaning the harvesting I'm talking about is an embryo that is fertilized outside of her body and a petri dish and the like. You'll, you'll see, as, as we get on, you'll see the, the, the important difference here. Yeah. And this is like a stupid question. Do people know they're pregnant in three weeks? Uh, usually, usually not. Uh, usually not, as a matter of fact. Uh, I mean, typically, in fact, um, uh, I think the official measuring point of pregnancy is, is when, you, uh, when a woman misses her period. So they count it. They count it from then, even though by, by definition she was pregnant a few days earlier, earlier than that. Because well, a lot of women will have miscarriages and not know that they were pregnant. Yeah. yeah. Or, but if you're hospitalized, they'll run past them. Yeah. 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 Okay. All righty. So now, uh, in order to understand this issue, uh, what does halacha say about stem cell research, we need to discuss abortion generally. I'm not sure if we ever had a complete discussion about abortion. What, what, is, what is the Jewish position? on abortion. Let's say a regular woman, she's pregnant. In other words, not in vitro, not, not, nothing fancy. A regular pregnancy. And uh, the woman uh, wants to terminate the pregnancy for whatever reason. What does halacha say about abortion? Now, obviously, we know that uh, in secular law, particularly American law, but also Israeli law, generally speaking, women have what is called a right to choose. In fact, I believe Israel may have one of the highest rates of abortion in the entire uh, world. Obviously, it's a smaller country, so the numbers of abortions are much smaller, but it's a very, very high rate. And uh, we know in the United States, at least, uh, this is a very divisive issue. This is the famous pro-life versus pro-choice debate. Uh, Roe versus Wade is the famous or infamous, depending on how you look at it, Supreme Court opinion going back to, I think, 1974, a real long, long time ago, uh, which kind of created a constitutional right. Uh, again, I'm, sometimes I, I don't, you know, I, I use legal terms, so I'm not, even, I'm not always talking to lawyers, but you understand, when, when the Supreme Court says something is a constitutional right, that actually means even if a state would want to pass a law against abortion, they wouldn't be allowed to do it because the Constitution protects what's called a woman's right to choose, a woman's privacy, uh, and, and the like. Now, we do know that in the United States this may change, uh, primarily because of the differing composition on the Supreme Court. Uh, Donald Trump uh, is appointing judges who uh, are against Roe versus Wade, and he already appointed two of them, uh, uh, Neil Gorsuch and uh, Brett Kavanaugh, and in all likelihood, since the other ones are pretty old, he's going to appoint uh, either this term or hopefully his next term. <laughs> he's going to appoint at least two or three more. Uh, and at that point, Roe versus Wade might be overruled at some point, which would change the whole law of abortion. Okay, so uh, those that are concerned about this, you know, should be aware that in the United States, the law may be in a state of flux. But in most of what is called the progressive world, I say that with a lot of sarcasm, uh, including Europe and, and Israel, uh, abortion is going to remain as kind of the thing that's allowed. Now, what is the Jewish position about abortion? So again, uh, the position can be relatively 
simply stated. That is, abortion is generally a sin, but it is not the same as murder. Abortion is not murder because the fetus is not a full person till he's born, till he or she is born, but because it is a potential life. The Torah prohibits terminating that life unless the mother's, unless the continuation of the pregnancy or the birth will endanger the mother. This is called pikuach nefesh, right? That's the big exception. And you said yeah. physically or emotionally? Yeah, so now let's talk about pikuach nefesh a little bit. First of all, what's the source of this rule? The source of this rule is a Mishnah in Maseches Oalos that says very specifically that if delivery of the baby through the birth canal, uh, let's say the baby's head is much bigger than the mother's birth canal, and in those days they didn't have fancy surgical procedures, so this could literally crush the woman's pelvis and, and cause organ failure and the like. So the halacha is the fetus can even be, God forbid, dismembered in order to save the mother's life, if, if, if that's necessary. Uh, so as far as the Mishnah is concerned, the Mishnah, the only heter there is for abortion is what is called pikuach nefesh, the mother's life, is in danger. Now, the question then becomes, what types of dangers are we talking about? Now, the Mishnah's case was a very clear physical danger. The baby was too big, right? The baby could cause the mother to die in the process of giving birth. But the poskim recognize that danger can have a psychological component as well as a physical component, because, uh, for example, rape and incest is a very good example. You sometimes hear a pro-life person say, "I'm a, a lot of politicians will say this, I am against, at least conservative politicians, I am against abortion except in cases of rape or incest. Now, if you think about it, stating it that way is not very logical. Because if I'm against abortion because I believe that the fetuses have a right to life, why is it the fetus's fault that it was born from, that it was generated from rape or incest? I mean, let's imagine she had a baby. Would we allow you to kill a baby because the baby was born from rape or incest? Certainly not. So if you're a pro-lifer and you say life begins upon conception, then what gives you the right to terminate a pregnancy because of rape or incest. So the way halacha analyzes it is different. Halacha does not have a rape or incest exception. This is very important. There is no exception called rape or incest. There is an exception if the mother's life is in danger. Now, in assessing whether this could endanger the mother's life, we certainly can look at the trauma the traumatic stress or the post-traumatic stress that the circumstances of the pregnancy occasioned. So one could imagine, I'm not saying it's always going to, it's not always going to be this way. One could imagine that the trauma of having to carry the child of a rapist or the child of, of an incestuous uh, parent or whatever it would be might be so significant that it seemingly might render the person suicidal. So 
Halacha would apply the category of pikuach nefesh to that situation. You see the difference? This is not an automatic thing. It's not a thing, oh, rape or incest, it's okay. That's not coherent. That's not logical, actually. But halacha says that it may be pikuach nefesh. Now, maybe yes, maybe not. Meaning, um, if she'd be willing to give up a child for adoption, then that, that obviously is much, much preferable to abortion. Uh, if she would be convinced to even raise the baby herself as a single mother, that might be proper too. Uh, meaning abortion is a last resort. Abortion is not a first resort under any circumstances. But when it's necessary to save the mother's life, uh, we do so. So we regard psychological trauma as potentially pikuach nefesh. So we regard psychological trauma as potentially pikuach nefesh, but yep. is there like a time limit, like, the day before the due date, can you still abort because of people? Yeah, so that's, so that's interesting. So halacha actually says, until the baby is actually born, which is defined as most of its head emerging, uh, it is an abortion. So uh, halacha does not differentiate. I'll talk about really early term abortions, but halacha permits an abortion even in, even in the ninth month itself. Uh, if it's a pikuach nefesh situation. Yeah. So if a fetus was conceived through consensual sex, but the woman didn't want to carry the child, um, say she was on like medication for mental health issues or something like that. So the actual conception event wasn't traumatic, but in order to carry the child to term, then she would have to like give up this medication that would then cause her to go through psychological distress. Would that still count as a situation? Where uh, yeah, th- th- those are complicated questions, but, but you are correct that the psychological stress does not have to emanate from the pregnancy itself, but it could emanate from other decisions that have to be made because of the pregnancy, such as not taking the medication, that, that, that is 100% correct. That would be a, because that is a secondary consequence of the pregnancy, even if the pregnancy itself, in fact, another example, which is not exactly your case, but it's analogous, is let's say the pregnancy itself is not dangerous, but it may aggravate some pre-existing medical condition that she has. Uh, so that would also be pikuach nefesh because it doesn't have to be the pregnancy that's causing the danger. It just means that because of the pregnancy, uh, there's a danger to her to her life. Yeah. But what if a woman in this Well, uh, who, who's going to do it? The Rav? I mean, <laughs> I mean, basically like this. I mean, you are, you are correct that it's really the Rav and the, and the woman who decide this situation in consultation with doctors and therapists. Uh, but if there's no one to do it, then, then her only option would be to, uh, you know, uh, go to another country. Uh, basically, I mean, um, that's going to be a big problem. Uh, but nevertheless, the halacha permits her to take this extreme action. Now again, I want to repeat, and I want to repeat over and over again, that uh, adoption, giving up a child for adoption, is far, far, far better than abortion 
under any circumstance. And it's kind of a crazy thing because pregnant women will sometimes say they want an abortion, but they would never consider giving up their child for adoption, which is kind of crazy. I will never, how could I give away my child? Therefore, let's have an abortion. I think I may have mentioned before an organization in Israel, a very important organization, Efret. Do not confuse it with the city Efret. Efret is also a, a town <laughs> in Israel. Same, same word, but different thing. Efrat is an organization that counsels uh, pregnant women, religious or secular. Most of them are not religious women. Uh, and it gives them the options and the opportunities to uh, either keep their baby with financial and uh, medical assistance, or they help arrange putting the baby for adoption to a good family. And their goal, frankly, is to give women the options so they will not have to go through an abortion. They don't force the women, obviously. If a woman wants an abortion in Israel, she can get one. But it is an organization that, because, because a lot of times, a lot of times, um, a, a woman decides to abort because she really feels desperate and she feels there's no choice and she feels she has no way of handling this. And if the information and the resources are there, uh, so I'm giving a little bit of a commercial for this, uh, the resources are there where she can either handle it herself, she's stronger than she thinks she is, or give the baby up for adoption if necessary. Uh, very often, the woman herself will prefer to do that rather than abort. I don't want to you know, uh, address this by making people guilty, whatever it is, but you know, there are, uh, uh, abortion does have psychic consequences. Uh, you know, um, women have nightmares about it afterwards and uh, they even dream about, I'm not religious, they, they dream about the baby coming back to them, etc. So it's not, uh, even from a psychological standpoint, it is not this, you know, I got rid of the problem, so, you know, it's not going to bother me anymore. It, uh, life does not, does not work that way. So, so an organization like Efrat is very important. And in the States, I'll give another commercial, there's a parallel organization called In Shifra's Arms. Uh, it's named after Shifra, remember Shifra? That's the midwife, uh, Shifra and Pua, were the two midwives uh, in Egypt that assisted the Jews in giving birth. And In Shifra's Arms is essentially the uh, American uh, parallel organization uh, to Efrat. Um, I happen to be the rabbinic advisor to, to In Shifra's Arms, so I'm familiar with that organization. Yeah. Wait, 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 is another one here? Really, I, ha I haven't seen that. Why, why do they have two? They just, uh, fav uh, it's interesting to see why, why there's a need for two organizations, but okay. Yeah, basically they help like, provide other options. Okay, like and okay so that's, that, that's good to know. If I may quote someone that I, I've never quoted before, and I will probably never quote again, but Hillary Clinton uh, remarked in the 2016 U.S. election that she felt abortion ought to be safe and legal, and rare. So that's an interesting point that she said, yeah, let it be safe, let it be legal. That was her position. But we should create a society where abortion is a very, very rare choice. It shouldn't be like the 614th mitzvah that, you know, every time there's a problem. Huh? Abortion in one of the countries? In one of the, in, in one of the, in the States, in the U.S.? Uh, they, they did try to ban it, but again, the, the way it works is that it'll go up to the Supreme Court of the United States and right now they're going to 
make the law. In other words, basically, until Roe versus Wade is overruled, states can pass whatever laws they want, but they're going to be struck down. They're going to be invalidated. But in around, you know, as they say, if Trump uh, reshapes the Supreme Court, uh, at some point those laws are going to be valid bans on abortion. Yeah. Um, so we're talking about the Pekuash Nefesh. Does that only apply to, like, I don't know if that exactly what I mean. So that, does that only apply to the mom? Like, let's say a parent, parents have kids, and that, that test that people get, the door... You, you okay, so... Like, let, what let, if they find out the kid has No, no, sad? excellent point. So now I want... I'm going to talk about that now. In other okay. words, what about problems with the kid, not with the mom? Yeah. We'll talk about that in a moment. Yeah. Um, if a woman is in, like, like a Jewish woman is in rural Idaho, and she knows that if she puts her baby up for adoption, there is absolutely no way it's going to be adopted by a Jewish couple. Yeah. Then... Would it like if she is not sure if she would prefer to get an abortion or to carry it to term, but knows that if she does carry it to term, it yep. will be adopted by yep. a Jewish family? Yep. Yep. Then would it be preferable? Okay, so, so let me give you two answers to that. First of all, it would be preferable to put the child up for adoption even in a non-Jewish family rather than terminate it. That, that's step one. But step two, that should never, ever, ever be necessary because even if she lives in Idaho... Uh, there will be, you know, your local Chabad house. Although, is Idaho the only state? They, do they have a Chabad they in Idaho? Have a Chabad they house do. Okay, I, I think that was the last. I think that was the last. Literally, the last state. Yeah, but besides that, you don't have to call the Idaho one. I mean, uh, first of all, there is in Denver something called the National Jewish Adoption Network, which works uh, for Jewish placements all over the United States. So, uh, you know, the woman is not limited to the particular place that she finds herself. I mean, maybe your question might be if she's in the middle of China or something, you know, but, but in, in the United States, there is no problem at all in trying to secure a, a Jewish placement for a child. Uh, again, I'm giving you a lot of names today. The National Jewish Adoption Network is something to be aware of if you either have to place a child, which I hope that you'll never have that situation, or you want to adopt a child, uh, uh, that's a very good resource to be aware of. Yeah. National Jewish, National Jewish uh, uh, either Adoption Network or Children's Network, I don't remember, but yeah. So where is the line drawn with Nefesh? For example, if somebody is prone to mental illness and postpartum depression is very, very common among women, if that feels like a risk in any way, is that grounds for abortion? So, so, so again, theoretically, theoretically, even short-term uh, dangers like postpartum can be pikuach nefesh, theoretic, theoretically. Realistically, we try to uh, create the, the protections that are needed so there won't be a danger, meaning you don't simply throw in the towel. You don't say, oh, dangerous, therefore. I mean, you really have to explore all of the alternatives, you know, putting, putting around a 24-hour watch if necessary. You know, we really try hard uh, not to simply declare pikuach nefesh. So pikuach nefesh is there. It's important to know that it's there, but it's also important to know that, you know, you shouldn't abuse it because an abortion is a very significant decision. So now let's talk about a different private problem, which was you, you were raised, and that is, let's say the mother is, the mother is healthy, the mother is fine, nothing's going to happen to the mother, uh, but there are some genetic abnormalities in the fetus itself. Now, you had mentioned, and I guess the talk, you talk about it here sometimes, 
the organization Dor Yisharim. I don't know if you're encouraged to, are you encouraged to utilize the organization? Mm-hmm. No? Okay. You know, oh, so, you, so you are, okay. So, so Dor Yisharim, well, it started, Dor Yisharim started probably around 30, 35 years ago, a long time ago. What's it called? Huh? What's it called? Dor Yisharim. And it started because of one particular genetic disease that is, was prevalent uh, among the Jewish Ashkenazi population, mm-hmm. and that was Tay-Sachs. Tay-Sachs disease is a very, very awful uh, disease uh, that uh, you know, children die, I think, at almost 100% rate before the age of 10, and they eventually they lose everything. It's kind of like a children's Lou Gehrig disease. ALS, uh, they, they lose their sight, they lose their hearing, they lose their ability to breathe, paralysis, uh, progressive paralysis, and a lot of pain as well. Uh, and the way it works is, uh, if both parents carry the gene for Tay-Sachs, there's a one in four chance, only one in four, that a child will carry the disease. Actually, I'm, done, I'm sorry, will have the disease. Uh, but if only one parent is a carrier, uh, then the child will not have the disease, although he may be a carrier. Uh, so in terms of safety, you know, your children will not get Tay-Sachs if one of, one of you is not a carrier. If both of you are a carrier, there's a 25% chance that the child will have that awful, debilitating disease. So Doria Sharim created a pre-marital genetic screening program uh, in which the way it would work uh, basically is if somebody made a shidduch with you and both of you want to participate, so both of you are tested, it's a blood test, both of you are tested by Dorya Sharim, and uh, they don't tell you if any one of you is a carrier, but if, if one of you is not a carrier, they will simply tell you shidduch is okay, shidduch approved. If both of you are carriers, it'll tell you both of you are carriers. And they're, I mean, they can't stop you from getting married. You can get married to anybody you want, but uh, they will advise you that you're both carriers and therefore. Now, obviously, doing testing very late in the marriage process, in the shidduch process, is risky because it might mean that, you know, you may break up a marriage or you may decide to go ahead with it, but, you know, people do it early and the like. Now, at the time that Doria Sharim was starting, genetic testing was in its infancy. You know, 30, 35 years ago. It was just beginning uh, as a field. And they were only testing for Tay-Sachs. And the Gedolim, Rav Moshe Feinstein, said, this is good because this is a debilitating, painful illness at 100% mortality with great suffering. So we ought to discourage people from getting married uh, to each other if they're going to produce such children. Now what's happened is genetic testing expands and expands and expands and expands, and now they offer all sorts of tests for things which aren't even fatal illnesses, but various medical conditions. And some rabbis are not so much in favor of that. Like, you know, um, you know you're know, you going to break up a shidduch because somebody has a propensity to be overweight. Although that's, they haven't gone that far yet. But, you know, things like that, you know, you know life, life is life. And uh, you don't, you know, Hashem runs the world and you don't try to change everything or guard against everything and the like. So Dar Yisharim today is a little more complicated uh, and controversial 
than it used to be because now it focuses on all sorts of conditions. Now, I believe, you know, you could specify what you want to be tested for. I mean, you don't have to be tested for it. It's like additional tests. You don't right. You don't have to be tested for everything, uh, but you're tested for, you know, the ones that are... Okay. So now, this is not abortion. This is simply deciding, you know, not to marry someone if you're both going to carry a gene. But the halakhic issue is this. Let's say, God forbid, a husband and a wife didn't bother with the testing. And they're both carriers. And the woman is not pregnant. And every time she's pregnant, there's a one in four chance that this child carries the disease. Now, we can do testing to see if the child has the disease. There's something called amniocentesis. Like you take amniotic fluid and you test it. So, question is simply this. I'm going to talk about other sicknesses in a moment. Let's take Tay-Sachs. Can a woman get an abortion of a Tay-Sachs baby to prevent the baby from being born and getting this awful disease. Now, it's not pikuach nefesh of the mother, or that, maybe that'll be the question, actually. So, Rav Moshe Feinstein had a very, very strict view of this. Rabbi Feinstein said, abortion is not permitted because of a genetic condition that the child has. Uh, because he says if the mother's life is not in danger, the child has the halachic right to be born. And who knows? Medical science can discover things. Medical science can and might discover refuot. And even if it doesn't, there is something worthwhile in the child living, even the few years that the child lives. It can do mitzvot and the like. So Rabbi Feinstein basically said, in fact, because of this, Rabbi Feinstein was against amniocentesis as a procedure. Because Rav Feinstein's argument was this. What is the point of finding out negative information if you're not going to be able to do anything about it? Now, this is a bit of a mystical idea. And the mystical idea is that if you don't know what, what you're carrying, Hashem may do a miracle. Because that would be a hidden miracle. Right. Once I know, this is how we do an issue in our bank accounts all the time. If you know how much money is in your bank account, it's not going to get bigger. If I know I have like 10 shekel in my bank account, it's not going to be 20 the next day. But you know, if I don't look, Hashem might do something. You know, you never know. So there actually is, <laughs> it's not funny, but there actually is such a philosophy. So here's what Rafainstein said. This is very interesting. If there is a medical condition that is correctable, then you're irresponsible not to check it out. It's like a person saying, I'm not going to check for cancer because what I don't know is not going to hurt me. That's not true. What you don't know is definitely will hurt you because you have a chiv. You have an obligation to do what's called hishtadlus, the effort to go to a doctor and get proper medical treatment. So, if there are genetic conditions which are therapeutically treatable by stem cells and the like, then go ahead and get the test. But in something like Tay-Sachs, at least right now, the only thing you can do with this information is terminate or not terminate. And if Halakha says you're not allowed to terminate, Rav Moshe says it is better not to do the test at all. 
This was Rav Moshe Feinstein's position. And he added, of course, especially since amniocentesis itself is a risky procedure for the fetus. That's, that's an additional point. So according to Rav Feinstein, even for Tay-Sachs, which is really the worst of the genetic conditions, uh, you cannot. Now, the, and this is how most posts come say. I believe the Rebbe uh, also issued uh, an opinion on this the same way. Uh, the big dissenter, there is one great posek who disagreed, and I mentioned him before, he often is a little bit of a maverick, a very independent posek. This is the Tzitz Eliezer, Rabbi Eliezer Waldenberg, who uh, was the uh, rabbi of Shari Tzedek Hospital for many, many years, a great, great expert in medical halacha. He died a few years ago, and he took the position, he permitted Tay-Sachs abortions until the last trimester. Now, he permitted it up to six months into the pregnancy. Uh, but this got Rav Moshe very upset. Rav Moshe was so upset. Rav Moshe said, God will have to forgive this rabbi for permitting this type of abortion. Now, let me point out the following point. This machlokas about Tasex should not be extrapolated to other conditions. Let, let's take another example. Down syndrome. There are parents in the world who if they discover they are carrying a Down syndrome baby will abort that baby. There are people that do that. They make a decision based on that basis. You need to know, and, and I hope this is perhaps even obvious to you, but you need to understand that halacha absolutely does not allow the abortion of a Down syndrome baby. A Down syndrome baby may be impaired in certain me- mental and even physical functioning, but they can, live, they, they can live 40, 50, 60 years, maybe more. Uh, they often have a happy temperament. Uh, there can be higher functioning Down syndrome and lesser functioning, but many can hold a job. I think there's a Down syndrome actor even, right? I think, I think on... Uh, or was on TV or movies? There are more than one. Okay, I remember. I remember. Last time I saw TV, there was only one, but okay. Uh, and, uh, and the like. So to simply say, I'm going to abort because he's not going to uh, you know, go to Harvard Law, Harvard Law School, uh, that's a very wrong decision. Uh, so don't confuse it. Tay-Sachs is a very different ballgame than Down syndrome. Uh, I've, I've seen cases where parents aborted because the kid had a cleft palate. What sense does that make? I mean, th- those are those are conditions that can be surgically. Actually, that was the only reason. That's what I read. You know, I don't know. I mean, it could be more and more things, right? So you have to be very careful. The tzitz eliezer is not talking about abortion for any genetic abnormality. The tzitz eliezer is talking about abortion for a childhood illness that will cause great pain, great suffering, loss of function at a young age, and for which there is no medical cure. Now, another example. We can test now. There, there are a lot of diseases that have very, very long latency periods, meaning to say we genetically can determine that it's there, but it's like a time bomb. It's not going to manifest itself for many, many years. An example is Huntington's, or they call it uh, Arlo uh, Guthrie's, uh, not Arlo, Woody, Woody Guthrie's disease. Woody is the father. And Huntington's is something that hits a person when they're 50, in their 50s. So for 40 years, or 50 years, they can live a normal life. And people are making abortion decisions because the, the baby is going to get a condition, a very painful condition to be sure, when they're 50, 
And, well, how are they going to feel if, you know, 30 years later they, they have a cure for this, right? So you have to be very, very careful. Tay-Sachs is, a, is, a, is kind of an unusual case in and of itself. Yeah. So, um, if, like, if, when you do Dorosharam and you find out, like, if the person has the, this carry, is the yeah. carry of the same, as you're not, would it, because you prevent him um, having a child born with a genetic disease, yeah. would it be like locker that you have to have the Dorosharam? Well, Rav Moshe Feinstein suggested that uh, it was a, a mitzvah to do it. Now, not everybody agrees with him. Uh, he did say it was an obligation. Others say, listen, our forefathers didn't do this, and we have trust in Hashem, and why do we have to investigate uh, these matters? So I'm not giving you a decision one way, one way or the other. Uh, but the one thing I can say is, not conceiving a child or not marrying somebody because of genetic conditions is not the same as an abortion, certainly. So... Uh, you are certainly allowed to follow the Dor Yisharim uh, protocol. Yes. Just to say also from a story in our community in Seattle, there is a Chabad couple who used to live there, Rabbi Eli and Chaya Estrin, who yes. were told from an ultrasound that their baby, the fetus, did not have a full heart and did not have a gen- uh, digestive tract. Yeah. Um, and so they said, are you familiar with... No, 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 I was going to be... Yeah, yeah, I'm going to talk about... Yeah, yeah. So, so they told them... I mean, I don't know what they told them, but they, they, the, they, the couple, decided to carry the baby to term, and then when he was born, uh, they sent him home with them to die at home because they said there's no way to feed him. Yes. He doesn't... His heart doesn't work, um, so, you know, he'll be dead within the next few hours. Yeah. Um, and three days later, I think, possibly five, they brought him back to the hospital, and they said, he's not dying. We need to feed this baby. Um, and they did like first of its kind surgery on him, many, many surgeries. And um, last week they posted on Facebook videos from his fourth birthday party. Amazing. And he is speaking and he can like not swim and walk, but he can, he can crawl, but he's like going through all this physical therapy. And it's crazy that like this kid who was literally born expected yeah, to die. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this, this just shows you that... Uh, he's... It's funny, like, yeah. I can show you the video. I don't know if he's at a four yeah. level, but he's in the video. He's like, it's my birthday. Thank you, everyone who got. They did a fundraiser for like a pool for water therapy. And he's yeah. like, thank you. This is great. I love front of the brain, meaning there's only a brain stem which controls breathing, but there's no consciousness, there's no, uh, no thinking ability at all. It's literally not there. Anencephaly. So some have permitted anencephalic abortions because the baby could only, could only survive uh, for a few hours after birth. So they permit those types of things. Those are different, different cases. Those are not the same as just genetic illnesses that will come later. So these are difficult issues. And I, I, don't, I also want to add that pikuach nefesh may be relevant here because some, if the stress of having this type of disability is so severe that the mother may go psychotic, so it folds in, it overlaps with pikuach nefesh uh, as well. But I will tell you that there are families that specialize in the adoption of what are called uh, special needs children. Uh, these are amazing people. These are like, uh, you talk about the 36 righteous yeah. people of the world. Uh, these people are among them, obviously, because they will take in children that literally nobody could raise, children without uh, 
stomachs and children without, uh, you know, anencephalic children and uh, very severely retarded children, mentally retarded, I think that's not the word you use today, but whatever, you know, different impairments, handicaps. So the truth is the adoption option is available even for these very, very severe uh, cases. Yeah. Are there any diseases, like I know Tay-Sachs is probably one of the worst, but are there any, like, things where, like, the doctor could say, yeah, you're going to have a tough pregnancy, like, eight and ninth month, the baby might not survive type of thing that then abortion would be, like, if you're going to be in so like, they can't say, mom, you're going to be 100% pain, but the baby is going to suffer, and, like, you know, like, the things with the cords wrapped around the neck, like, I know that's obviously different, because that's a big, that big, I mean, yeah. live, but is there any, like, Diseases where they're like well, I'll tell, I'll, tell, I'll, tell, I'll tell you this much. This much I know. There's a hetter because I've I've heard it from from rabbis that if the medical judgment is that the baby is for sure going to die in the in the mm-hmm. in the womb itself, uh, but it would be safer to the mother to to abort it now instead of it dying okay. in her womb, uh, that that's a hetter. But that's a little different because there the baby will never be born according to yeah. medical judgment. It will abort spontaneously so you are allowed to abort it early to make it a safer safer procedure also like i don't know if this is correct if this actually happens but like when women give not i don't i'm not saying miscarriages or stillborns but like there's some stories here of women who like still have to carry the dead baby would that be considered an abortion if the baby's already gone no of course no 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 that's 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 obviously much if god forbid a baby dies in the mother's womb, the yes. baby is dead. Removing a dead baby from a woman's it's body okay. is not abortion. It's 100% uh, permitted, and uh, we would tell her to do it, to yeah. have it removed as soon as possible. Now, there is no mourning, you understand, uh, for either the death of a fetus within the woman's body or for a stillbirth, whatever. Uh, the laws of mourning are not observed, and uh, that raises interesting psychological questions because uh, women in particular often feel... Uh, a sense of loss, maybe more so than the husbands who may be less attached to the pregnancy per se, and halacha does not have uh, an official ritual uh, for this. Uh, there is a minag though, we're, we're not totally uh, without uh, ceremony. There is a minag that if it's a boy, the boy is given a post-mortem bris, a bris after his death if he's developed enough to have that. And uh, both the boy and a girl are given a name so they go to Olam Haba with a, with a name. But strangely enough, I, I can't fully understand this. I'm not so familiar with this even myself. Strangely enough, the Chevra Kedisha does it privately. They, 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 they don't invite the parents to be there. Meaning the Chevra Kedisha will do the bris. And I guess they'll, they'll ask the parents what name they would like. But, but the parents are not there to participate in that goodbye ceremony. To me, that, that always sounded a little strange, but that's, that's the minog of the Hebrew Kaddishas, yeah. Um, do you still name a fetus in the case of a miscarriage? And if so, what if the miscarriage happened before you knew the gender? Well, generally speaking, uh, they don't do the name un- un- until uh, there are identifiable limbs, so it's kind of fairly developed. You would typically be, you know... Um, after, certainly after the first trimester, the, the, the early miscarriages, they would, not, uh, they would not do anything about. Okay? Uh, yeah? Um, what, if the, what if the medical professionals say that the way that the fetus is developing is likely causing a fetal pain? Well, 
so then, you know, then you get into difficult questions, and that is, uh, can anything be done, you know? Uh, they now have amazing things. They can do surgery on unborn fetuses. Either they pop them out, like a, like a piece of bread. In other words, the baby is attached to the umbilical cord. They pull it out and fix it up. Or, or they can go into the woman's body, robots or whatever it is. Uh, it may, I mean, the, the surgical procedures they have today are so amazing. They can have these like tiny robots go into the woman's body oh, and, do, oh my and uh, the surgeon is, is manipulating it by computer. This is where computer games can give, give you valuable, this. right, you said. Yeah, so it gives you valuable skills, right? You know how to manipulate a mouse and <laughs> all these you things. You watch on the screen yeah. and you literally... Th- that's how they do surgery, that's how they can do surgery today. Isn't that like a colonoscopy? Yeah, yeah, but they can do it long distance. You can have the surgeon. You can have the surgeon in Australia, in Australia, operating on a patient in America. Oh, seriously? Yes, because if it's all through the the robots and the manipulation of That's uh, so creepy. Well, what about the time difference? Well, you, you have to you have to figure that out. But okay. <laughs> so. Um, so that's the first thing. So, so I, I think we'd have to figure out what type of pain relief we could do. Now, it could be if, if the baby right now is suffering excruciating pain, uh, there may be, a, may be a hazard for it, but, but we would have to explore the alternatives. Okay, so this is kind of a general overview about, about abortion, meaning when people ask, uh, is Judaism pro-life or is it pro-choice? As is often the case, Judaism is kind of in the middle. We're much closer to pro-life. We are certainly much closer to pro-life, but uh, we do understand that there are times when abortion might be the halachically proper thing to do, but but usually, but hopefully it's very very rare. Yeah. Why? Okay, I'm gonna say like, why is abortion legal in Israel, but you can't neuter slash spay a dog or cat? Like, why, why are you allowed to... I don't no, no, I, I, think, I think you're confusing two things. You're confusing secular law and halacha. Yeah. Under the secular law of Israel, abortion is legal, and spaying dogs and cats are legal. Oh, it is? Oh, yeah, of course, of course. Oh, I thought... I, maybe this is just something I've heard. No, it's not... cats are not saved because, like, Judaism does not believe in... Judaism? Like, well, 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 one second. That, that happens to be true, but you can't abort either. I, I mean... Uh, yeah. The problem is Israel, you're living under two different laws here. Yeah. Israel is a secular democracy, and there are laws of the Knesset, and uh, Israel is the home of the Jewish people, and if you're religious, you follow the laws of the Torah. Yeah. These are two different things. So under the secular laws of the state of Israel, you can certainly spay a dog or a cat. Oh. And you can get it. The government or any veterinarian can. Uh, if you're a chiloni, if you're not a religious Jew, you go to a veterinarian and they'll spay your dog and cat. I mean, uh, plenty of people do it all the yeah. time. Uh, and, and you can get an abortion, right? Mm-hmm. So they're the same. Uh, if you follow halacha, yeah. then both are not proper, okay. right? So there's, there's not a difference there. It's just a question yeah. of which body of law you're looking at. Yeah. So if a couple gets married and they didn't do the genetic testing beforehand, yeah. and then they want to conceive a child, and then they find out that their genetic combination is risky, yep. and they haven't fulfilled the mitzvah of procreating, yep. what's the recommendation? Okay, so I, actually, I, I'm gonna, that, that's exactly where I'm going to go with this, but let me just say that there are a few options they can do. Uh, one option is to get divorced <laughs> and find another pattern. Uh, the other option uh, might be uh, pre-implantation genetic screening. They could 
do pregnancies in vitro and check. But, but I'll talk about that. That's, that's getting ahead of myself. But that, that'll be where we're going. Yeah. Legally speaking, like in terms of U.S. law, um, wouldn't Jewish law prefer that the U.S. law be pro-choice? In that, like, there should be the opportunity for a woman, meaning within the context of Jewish law, like for an Orthodox community, the preference would be that if a woman goes to a Rav or a couple goes to a Rav and they decide that abortion is appropriate, it should be legal for her to get that abortion. Yeah, th- this is a very, very excellent question. Uh, let me just address it for a few minutes. Okay, Jewish law, in terms of Jewish law, is general, generally against abortion, unless it's pikuach nefesh, right? And not only for Jews, this is very important, not only is it against abortion for Jews, it is absolutely against abortion for non-Jews under the seven Noahide laws, right? So that's clear. Judaism is against abortion unless there's pikuach nefesh situation. So the question becomes, I'm a religious Jew, and what should my political position be on the secular laws of, of, let's say, the United States? So the gut reaction that a person has is, well, hey, if I believe abortion is wrong, I should be in favor of laws that say abortion is wrong. Right? That's the gut reaction. But you are 100% correct that maybe that's not necessarily the right reaction, because here is the thing. When you live in a secular regimen where abortion is allowed, you then have the freedom to go to your Rav and determine whether you could have an abortion. And if Allah says, no, you won't, I mean, let's assume that, if Allah says, yes, you will. But if you lived in a secular world that said abortion is not permitted, well, they may be stricter than your posek. They may say you can't do it at all. Right, so the argument has been it is easier for us to keep halacha when the government stays out of the abortion business mm-hmm. than it, when it stays in the abortion business. And therefore, you come to the paradox, it is a bit of a paradox, that you can be religiously pro-life, essentially, but politically pro-choice. That, that, that is a respectable position. Uh, but I have to say, the Rebbe himself, I think, was, was against that position. The Rebbe, the Rebbe himself uh, took the position that uh, part of your obligation as a Jew is to promulgate the values of the Noahide Code in general society. And since under the Noahide Code, the seven months of Noah, abortion is wrong, it would be wrong for you to uh, support uh, legalization of that which is treated as sinful. That was the Rebbe's position. Again, that's, that's I mean, many, many people's position. But putting that aside for a moment, there is a logical case that could be made uh, for what you're, what you're suggesting. In fact, again, I'll say Lahavdil again, uh, many Catholic politicians uh, try to do the same distinction. Uh, they'll say, religiously, I'm against abortion, but, and the, the voters never understand that. It's interesting. Voters do not get that uh, subtlety, but I think there is a, a distinction that you're making. Yeah. When do we, when do we think that neshama goes into the body? Okay, so so the halacha is pretty clear that we do not treat abortion as murder. So our position is the neshama 
Well, let me put it this way. There is a neshama in the fetus, for sure, because that's the neshama that learns Torah. But since it is connected to the mother and living off the mother, it does not have the status of an independent neshama. So you have to differentiate between when the neshama enters and when does it acquire the status of separate being. Separate being and entry are, are two different issues. And the, 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 the independent being is only with birth. Until birth, it does not have independent being. It is considered to be an extension of the mother's neshama. And that happens mm-hmm. at... At birth. Birth. No, but when it's... Yeah. When it's the size of a peanut and it doesn't have a, a brain or a heart... Yeah. Can it be learning Torah? Uh, oh, 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 so you're asking, oh, you're asking me a good question. You're asking me when does the fetus begin to learn Torah, or when does the embryo begin to learn Torah? Yeah. That's what you're asking me. Um, you know, I don't know. I have to ch- I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to check that. I mean, we know at some point the Malach is teaching the unborn child Torah. Uh, how, early, how early in the process... Um, I'll check it on. Uh, I, I believe it would not be earlier than the 41st day from conception, but, but even that's pretty early. That, uh, and I'll, I'll go over why, why that, that's going to be relevant. Yeah? But I feel like with, with like pro-life there are always, they're always like pieces that say that if the mother's life is in danger, it's a separate Right, thing. right. And you can always appeal it. So I feel yep. like even if there are pro-life laws, there are always like, appeals that can be made, yes. especially religious. Yes, but the difference is this. The difference is who decides if it's pikuach nefesh. For example, let's take a rape or an incest case. Mm-hmm. Now, if there's a secular law that says abortion is forbidden unless the mother's life is in danger, and there's a rape or incest case, the attorney general of Louisiana might think, oh, I, I think she could just be tough enough and bear it. When in fact the Rav would see that she's suicidal. You see what I'm saying? In other words, but then wouldn't she be able to bring in like a psychological report saying like, oh, but like no, this actually says she's suicidal. And she well, uh, you know, it, it, it depends. Uh, you know, uh, yeah, it, it's certainly a possibility, but there's no guarantee she'd win. Okay. It depends overall. In other words, the idea, the argument goes that you don't want secular people, secular authorities, to interfere. In my ability to make halachic choices, that, that's kind of the, the kind of the problem here. Okay, alrighty, uh, yeah. Just to Jen's point about like, can the baby be learning Torah before it has a brain? Yeah. Like, baby definitely cannot be learning Torah even with the brain development as it is at birth. We're talking about like actual learning. Torah. It's a spiritual essence, obviously. Right. So, like, yeah. whether it has a brain or it has the brain as it's developed, like, if you if you study like the biology of a newborn's brain, it does so little. It's a, it can do so little. And yeah. like it can't even see things mostly. Like vision doesn't really exist at that age. Yeah. So it's like it's interesting that like does it really matter how much you brain so much. Kind of. For something yeah. so fresh. Babies are dumb. Babies are adorable. Oh, no. How are they, they supposed talk? to understand all of this? They're they're like the one thing about babies that you have to know, and this is something amazing, that uh, how hardwired we are to want to learn things, to want to explore things. Exactly. We're born yeah. with Everything such a curiosity, such a desire. Uh, as, and, you know, unfortunately, we sometimes lose it in the course of uh, growing up. So uh, in Sifri Hasidus, there's always a the thought that you have to be eternally young. You have to be, uh, 
taking that attribute of youth, of wanting to grow, wanting to explore, wanting to look around, uh, to always be open to things. That's a tremendous, tremendous quality. Okay. All righty. So this is kind of a little bit of a background about abortion. Again, there's a lot more, a lot more ins and outs, but I think uh, you have a general structure of, of abortion. So now let's move back to stem cell research. And that is, okay, you got an embryo. The embryo is in vitro. It's in a Petri dish. It's not in the woman's body. And the embryo is the size of a pencil point. It's less than two weeks old. And I want to know, can I destroy the embryo to harvest little stem cells that I can culture and reproduce and make into 200 different types of tissues? In other words, given the reality that abortion is forbidden, is the harvesting of stem cells treated as an abortion for halachic purposes? So here, I'm going to give you three arguments. I don't know if we'll finish all of them today. And, uh, and give you the pros and the cons of each of the arguments. Argument number one. There are some opinions that say all abortion is permitted within 40 days of conception. 40 days of conception. And since the harvesting of stem cells is way before the 40-day point, so if you follow the 40-day rule, then there's no abortion problem because it is an embryo that is less than... In fact, even if it's frozen in place and you do it a year later, it makes a difference, but developmentally, it is less than 40 days old. Okay, that's the, that's the statement. Now, let's explore that. What is the source in the Talmud that 40 days makes a difference? So there's a famous statement in the Talmud that any fertilized ovum, fertilized egg, that's less than 40 days is called mere water. Maya ba'alma. It does not have the status of a human personhood until it hits the 40-day mark, uh, biologically or physiologically. Huh? Is that in the Talmud? Yes, yes, but, 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 but okay. Um, Biologically or physiologically, what is important about the 40 days? Because the 40 days is the beginning of the development of a neural tube, which is the foundation of a spinal cord. Okay. Now, here is very important. This is a very important general principle I'm going to tell you. You cannot decide halacha based on quotations of language unless you look at the context in which the language appears. Because when you look at the context in which the language appears, you will sometimes see that it doesn't really apply to what you want to use it for. So here's the thing. The Talmud does say, less than 40 days, the embryo is mere water. That, that, those words appear. But what is it talking about? It, what? Those words appear. It's mere water? Mere water, that's the phrase, water. Meaning it, it doesn't have the status of anything. It doesn't have the status of, of a human personhood. But the Talmud is not talking about abortion. The Talmud is talking about a different problem, a different, pro unrelated problem. And the unrelated problem is in Vayikra, the Torah says a woman after either childbirth or stillbirth must bring a sacrifice. Right? Are you familiar with those laws? A woman 
whether she gives birth to a live child or, God forbid, a dead child, must bring a sacrifice in the base Hamikdash. And she brings it on the 41st day after the birth of a boy. And she brings it on the 81st day after the birth of a girl. Okay, why those differences, we'll leave for another time. Now, you might think, why, why does a woman bring a, a korban after childbirth? So your natural gut reaction would be Thanksgiving offering. But that can't be the case. Because she brings it not only for a live child, she also brings it for a dead child, which is not really an occasion for Thanksgiving. So actually, the sacrifice a woman brings is a sin offering, not a Thanksgiving offering. She brings a sin offering. What's the sin here? So Chazal say, the sin is that in the course of a painful labor, the woman might have sworn she's never going to do this again. <laughs> so in case she made such an improvident oath uh, not to fulfill the Torah, the Torah gives her an atonement through a korban. Now, the Talmud then says in that particular context that if she had a very early miscarriage, and it's almost impossible how would a woman even know, to tell you the truth? But if she miscarried less than 40 days, I mean, I mean, all this would be is a discharge of blood. It's hard to know how she would know this. Uh, there is no korban because the fetus or the embryo or the blastocyst, whatever it is, is halachically classified as mere water. It doesn't have the status. Now, here is the context. The Gemara does not say that abortion is permitted. It simply says the woman is exempt from korban upon a spontaneous miscarriage. Some opinions have tried to extrapolate from there that even abortion would be permitted. But many opinions say this has nothing to do with abortion. Abortion is still going to be prohibited because it's a potential life that you're snuffing out. Now, this would have a major repercussion in what's called the morning after pill. This is an interesting point. Uh, the morning after pill, well, what is that? Uh, well, you know, a woman is with somebody. She's afraid she might be pregnant. So the morning after pill, what does that do? In case there has been a fertilization, it what? It dislodges or it prevents the fertilized egg from implanting itself on the wall of the uterus. So it's not a contraceptive device. Contraception is something that prevents fertilization. The morning after pill, at least the way it's commonly described, I guess there must be different varieties, but at least um, the one that Halacha talks about, the morning after pill is not a contraceptive. The morning after pill is a very early abortion. It's taking a fertilized ovum and preventing implantation. So would the morning after pill be permitted? So it depends on this machlokas. Obviously, the morning after pill, the embryo is less than 40 days old. It's the morning after. It's one day old. So if you consider that to be a heter for abortion, the morning after pill would be permitted. If, on the other hand, we don't consider it a heter, the morning after pill would be prohibited. Now, I will say that as a general rule, we don't, 
contrary to what you might hear, we don't automatically permit abortion within 40 days or the morning after. But when you have other extenuating circumstances, you might be lenient. So for example, a rape or incest situation, we might allow a morning after pill even if we wouldn't allow it more than 40 days after conception. Uh, yeah? So, uh, may I yeah, uh, you first, yeah. Okay. So does Judaism believe that life at conception, not inception? Okay, what's, the diff- what's, what's, what's inception? So conception is the fertilization of yep. the egg, but inception is when a unique genetic code is formed. When it's when what is formed? A unique genetic code is formed. Yes, yeah, yeah. So, so, so uh, the, the, the laws of abortion, according to this, if you're machmer in the 40 days, kick in at conception, not inception. That, that, that's correct, yeah. Yeah. So is it life or the potential for life? Yeah, so, so technically it's not life, it's potential for life. It's, yeah, because it, life does not happen until birth. Yeah. What about taking the morning after pill, like, not as, like, say a woman just does not know if she, if well, most Well, most of the time she's not going to know, uh, by definition. The morning after she's not going to know, uh, usually. Uh, but obviously if the only reason to take it is in case there is a pregnancy, so uh, you you could you couldn't do it because uh, because you might you might be destroyed. So again, again, the bottom line is that the also a pill for ST like I I know isn't it also for like STDs and stuff like would that be like no 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 well STD is a different thing (laughs) that that, uh, I thought it I thought it also worked for like yeah. Like or... Well, well, if if there is a a non pregnancy related reason to take this thing, and it may have the incidental yeah. effect of, of of an early abortion, that would be a different. That would actually be permitted if it could deal with STDs or yeah. or, or, or whatever whatever it would be. Okay, so what, what what I want you to walk away with is simply this: that the statement that you will often read in popular books on abortion or Jewish law that all abortion is permitted within 40 days is not a true statement. It is, as is always the case in halacha, a machlokes. Uh, that's always the safe answer for everything. And many, many people are stripped. So consequently, to justify, I'm bringing it back to stem cells, to justify embryonic stem cells, because, or harvesting, because it is pachot, it is less than 40 days, which it is, that itself would not be enough of a heter. Those who permit 40 days would permit it, but those who don't permit it would not permit it, right? Okay. So now let's go with argument number two. I'm going to give you a second argument that might work for embryonic stem cells. And that is, let's assume it is abortion. It's abortion. But abortion itself is mutter to save the mother's life. So maybe we could say this. Hey, harvesting of embryonic stem cells can save people's lives. We can make heart valve tissue that prevent people from dying, spinal cord tissue. So maybe one way you can analyze this is by saying, you see, the difference is the first reason I gave you, I mean, it's not abortion because it's less than 40. And that's a machlokas. The second reason I'm giving you is moving in the opposite direction. It is abortion, but it's included in pikuach nefesh. 
Right? Would that work? Now, it's true, it's not pikuach nefesh of the mother. The Mishnah's case is the mother's life is in danger. But who says it has to be the mother? If it's pikuach nefesh, if this could help some guy that's in New York City, let his pikuach nefesh matter the abortion. Right? So would that work? Or is there a problem with that? So here's what you need to know. Pikuach nefesh requires that the stem cells actually be used therapeutically rather than experimentally. By that I mean the following. A lot of stem cell research are simply things that are happening in laboratories to see where the knowledge might lead to. And even though in the long run that may save lives, that is not halachically considered pikuach nefesh. Pikuach nefesh has to be, now it doesn't mean you know for sure you're going to save somebody, but it has to be that you're actually doing an intervention that could save a life. So if there would be a hatcher for the harvesting of embryonic stem cells, it could only be if the stem cells themselves are going to go into a patient whose life might be saved. We don't consider general medical experimentation as pikuach nefesh. Let me, let me give you an example, about uh, a simpler example. Let's say I'm a medical student. Now, if God forbid I'm an intern, let's say, or a resident. So if God forbid somebody has a heart attack, I can drive on Shabbos uh, because I, I'm needed to save his life, although it's better for me to get a non-Jewish cab. Okay. Now, let's say I don't have a patient that needs me, but my professor is giving a lecture on how to treat heart attacks Saturday afternoon. So I tell myself, you know, I can certainly drive to that lecture because if I don't drive to that lecture, I won't get the information I need and then 20 years from now, somebody gets a heart attack, I won't know what to do. So I'm allowed to desecrate Shabbos because this will give me the knowledge to be able to save lives. You don't say that because pikuach nefesh requires that you have an actual situation so that's one problem with the analogy, that this would not be carte blanche for experimentation of stem cells. This would only justify harvesting that goes to save, or potentially, I don't mean for sure save, but potentially save a life. Yeah? So that means if you have a case in front of you, yeah. you can harvest them? According to this reasoning, but I'm going to give you another, another problem. But, but correct. But all I'm saying is that even if you accepted this pikuach nefesh argument, it would require an actual case of a person. In fact, that's the actual phrase halacha uses. Uh, the phrase is chola lifanenu. Chola lifanenu means the sick person is in front of us. We don't mean in front of us in this location. It could be anywhere in the world, but a person right now who may stand to benefit. Um, I'll give you an, another area where this is discussed. This is discussed in autopsies. We know that as a general rule, uh, Jewish law, halacha, does not, when we talked about this a few weeks ago, does not like autopsies. You don't cut into dead bodies. Now, what if the doctor claims that they need to do an autopsy because that will allow them to get information about the disease that killed the person, 
which will enable them potentially to save lives in the future. Right? That's why doctors like to do autopsies, right? They, they, they figure they'll cut into the body, they'll, they'll see the progression of a disease. So we have a famous, famous psat from the Neide Behuda. Neide Behuda was Rav Yecheskel Landau, who was the great Rav of Prague, Czechoslovakia, going back in the uh, 1700s, one of the great uh, postkim. And he said, the idea that your intervention is justified to save a life is only if there's a person who's right now in the world who could benefit from what you're doing. If it's long-term medical research that will not yield a benefit for somebody who needs it right now, that's not pikuach nefesh. We don't allow the violation of the Torah for future things that aren't in front of us yet. Okay, we can do general medical research during the week, but we don't violate autopsies or violate Shabbos because of future. So as a result, that's one thing to keep in mind regarding stem cells. Uh, yeah? Um, God forbid, but if you had a non-Jewish family member that passed away and they wanted to do an autopsy on them, but they would need to get your permission to do so. Yeah. Would you be allowed to do that? Yeah, that's an excellent problem. Uh, halacha prohibits autopsies. The question becomes, just reading your question, uh, what does halacha say about non-Jewish autopsies? Uh, is it under the Noahide Code? So that's a big machlokas. There are those that say that the prohibition of autopsies emanates from the fact that all human beings are created in the image of Hashem. Mm-hmm. That includes Jews and non-Jews, and therefore all of these laws apply to non-Jews as well. Uh, there are other opinions, again, Machokas, that say that these are specifically connected to the holiness of the Jewish people, and therefore for non-Jews you're allowed to do whatever the secular law permits. This is the same Machokas by cremation, by the way. It's the same Machokas. Uh, Judaism is obviously totally against cremation of Jewish people. Uh, does Judaism permit the cremation of non-Jewish people? Uh, and if therefore, if you have a non-Jewish relative, could you authorize a cremation? This would be the same machlokas as, as autopsies. Okay, now... Uh, um, on extending the question of like pikuach nefesh for someone who's not the mom, yeah. um, even though this is not directly related to stem cells, if yeah. you had a pregnancy and the mom has, like say, a teenage child who has very severe mental health issues, and they say, like, mom, if you have this baby, I'm going to kill myself, would that be... A, a Shiloh, or, or is that just the kind of situation where you say, like, you have to take care of the teenager, but the mom should certainly have the baby? Meaning she wants to have the baby, but also she has okay, a child. Okay, that's a very excellent question. We'll, 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 we'll talk about this next week because I want to continue with that. But, but, but I will say this. Theoretically, uh, the life of the teenager would have precedence over the life of the baby, just as the life of the mother has precedence over the life of the baby. Pikuach Nefesh doesn't have to be the mom, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but I think practically we would not allow such a situation to exist because we would simply uh, put the kid uh, on 24-hour watch or even put him in a mental hospital for a while and we would work with him. You know, we, would, we would not allow it to, to go that far. But, but theoretically, if that was literally the choices that we had... Um, what do I remember? You know, uh, if you remember Ronald Reagan, this is apropos of nothing, but it just reminds me of this. Uh, he was married to a woman before Nancy. The woman was an actress. Jane Wyman was, a, was an actress. And when he decided to get divorced from her, she said, 
if you get divorced from me, I will kill myself. Now, okay, Lamaise, she didn't and everything was okay. But, you know, this is an interesting question. Like, let's, let's say your spouse tells you, tells you this. You know, are, you allowed to, are you allowed to get divorced if the guy or the woman says, I'm going to kill myself if you leave me? Uh, does that mean that that's kind of a, a blackmail? They could permanently blackmail you into staying into a relationship. It's a good question. It's, frankly, if, if this is a true statement, it's hard to see the heter to leave. <laughs> What gives you the heter to uh, you know, cause somebody to, to kill themselves? So uh, it would be a similar issue that the need to, to, to protect the life of the child would, would override, the existing child would override the, uh, the prohibition of abortion. Yeah. Quick question. Um, we said we're not allowed to violate the Torah for any future results. Yeah. Does that, so that goes along with the fact that if a child is going to, it says, you know that this particular disease that the child has is, means the child's going to die when they turn seven. Yeah. They can't live past seven. Would that not permit you to do an abortion for someone like that? Well, no. That, that was the case of Tay-Sex, right? And remember, Moshe Feinstein said you cannot abort a fetus because of the future disease the child is going to have. Okay. That's essentially the, the essence of Rabbi Feinstein's rule. Uh, yeah? So you were, saying, you were talking about death and heteros, and it's just reminds me, are there heteros you can get for, like, not sitting shiver, like, not mourning the death of your estranged family members? Uh... Well, uh, you know, it depends what you, what you mean by estranged. For example, there are heterim, I'm not saying they're mandatory, uh, for family members that intermarried. Uh, there are heterim for family members that have rejected Judaism or converted to Christianity. You know, there are heterim. But if it's simply, you know, you don't, you don't get along with them, uh, then I think you need to sit shiva. And in fact, I'll, I'll point out again, I, I myself have been involved with uh, is, you know, estranged families and the like. And shiva is often very, very therapeutic. Uh, let's say a person is estranged from their parents. So in a sense, they're mourning the loss of a relationship. There's, there's a deep sadness in a person that is estranged with their parents. And when their parents die, they're given a way of almost connecting to them again. So you'd be surprised that sometimes shiva may be especially important when there's a stranger. It's a way of kind of almost fixing things in some way. Yeah, but then you can feel guilt for not being connected with them all the time. Yeah, but you'll, but you'll feel the guilt either way. I Meaning you'll, you'll feel more guilt if you don't sit a shiva. If you sit a shiva, yeah, you'll feel guilty. That's fine. But, but you'll, you'll feel better that at least you've done this. Especially since Judaism teaches that what you do during shiva, you know, raises the soul. You know, you'll feel that you're... In fact, I saw a very beautiful prayer. You can look at it on the internet. Um, this was Yisker. You know what Yisker is. Yisker is on the holidays, which is a memorial for our parents. So this was a nusach, a text of Yisker for an abusive parent. Quite, quite, quite beautiful. The idea of uh, what goes through a child's mind and how do they kind of remember the parents that abused them. And I think you see the way that this is a, little, a kind of a way of connecting on some level. It was very, very helpful. Alrighty, so we're going to continue this next week. Give you a wonderful uh, Adar. And- Thank you. Thank you. I guess next week.